Who knew 60% of medical professionals did not know how to conduct CPR properly? Now two Brown University students have come up with an app that hopefully will solve the problem. And after listening to these two students, if I ever need CPR, anyone who's doing it, feel free to crack my ribs. Welcome to MedTech Monday. Hi, um, my name is Danielle Sturm, and I'm the Marketing Communications Manager at Nemec. Um, I'm here today with two founders of a venture out of Brown, Abby Kohler and Greg Fine. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us today. Um, if you want to tell me a little bit about your venture, Resuscitech, um, that would be great, and also about who you are and why you're working on it and why you're here today. Sure. Uh, so, Resuscitech is a venture that's aiming to create innovative solutions for emergency medicine. And right now we're focused on CPR and creating a technology that'll make it easier for people to perform CPR in emergency situations. Yeah. So surprisingly, CPR actually fails almost 90% of the time for out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, uh, which is really shockingly high. And um, almost 80% of cardiac arrests occur out of hospital. So we're trying to develop a technology that enables uh, first responders, people who will get to the scene first to give the best possible uh, CPR. Yeah. And this isn't just EMTs. This is bystanders and family members of victims of cardiac arrest because emergency situations can be incredibly stressful when they happen and you feel really powerless when you don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So we want to give people some of their agency and their power back in these types of situations. Awesome. Um, so how did you come up with the technology? Yeah. Um, so we were actually working on a technology in a uh, related field in emergency medicine, and that ended up um, not working out due to some uh, technological and uh, intellectual property barriers. Um, so we were looking for a new direction to take that, what was at the time pressure sensing technology. Um, and I was in a medical illustration class when I overheard someone talking about uh, how difficult it was to do CPR. Um, and Greg and I were already working on this other technology, so we decided to uh, turn that to CPR. And then ultimately pressure sensing decided it turned out to be not the correct way to go. Um, and we started working with depth sensing technology, like accelerometers, which Greg can tell you more about. Yeah. So now we're utilizing the accelerometer that's built into smartphones. So every single smartphone has one um, and they measure motion basically. So we use our proprietary algorithm to use the accelerometer data and convert that into chest compression data. So then we can measure the depth of chest compression and then give feedback to the user, uh, both auditorily and visually. So they know if they need to use more force pushing deeper into the chest or less force or also speed up or slow down so they can give the best possible care every single time. Yeah. People can simply hold their phone while performing CPR between their thumb and their pointer finger. And that allows you to see the screen really clearly while administering chest compressions. And we're also developing a strap that will adhere to the back of the phone. So that way you can strap the phone to the back of your hand so you don't have to hold it. When did you start working on this? Uh, We started working on it in its current iteration, actually in the in the summer when we pivoted away from a standalone device that also used accelerometers. But we've been working on this in some form for about a year since last October. Um, so you're both students at Brown. What do you study there? I study biomedical engineering. And I study electrical engineering. And we're both seniors. We're both seniors. So you're going to graduate in May? Yes. So what are your plans <laughs> after graduation? Uh, we're going to be working full-time on Resuscitech in Providence. Awesome. Um, So it's great that you're staying in Providence. Is there any reasons why? 
Yeah, we just have a lot of support here. We've been here for the past year working on this, and we've developed a team of uh, really good advisors that have been uh, really influential to our success so far. Um, the NEMIC team has been really helpful in that uh, both their programs have given us a lot of momentum and a lot of help. Uh, and also, we have some advisors at the university from the Entrepreneurship Center that have been really helpful, and also uh, some clinical advisors from the medical school and the hospital here. Uh, so it's really a great place for us to that, that we've started here and we plan on staying here. Awesome. Um, so you mentioned that you're part of some of NEMIC's programs. Um, I know the first one that you're in is the business plan preparation program. Um, this is where I guess NEMIC advisors and our managing partners will work with you on your business plan around your technology. What are your goals with participating in that program? Yeah. So, I mean, we really want to build out our business plan a lot to a, a more refined degree. Um, so stuff like financial projections and our regulatory pathway and our exact path to market, we, we have a loose grasp over, but we're hoping to uh, get a much more refined grasp on that and uh, really build that out to a lot more detail. Yeah, what I've been seeing a lot too is a lot of um, entrepreneurs come in who are great innovators on the technology side. Um, and I always wonder for you guys, what is it like kind of going over into that business side and learning more of now, now that you have this technology, what is it like going to be starting a business? So I thought that pursuing business at first was pretty daunting because it wasn't something I knew a lot about. Um, but as I've learned more about it throughout the past year, it's been really exciting and it sort of scratches the same problem solving itch that engineering does. Um, and I've come to really like it and uh, be very excited by that field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another thing I'll add is that uh, for me, at least, it's every time I learn more about it, it becomes a little bit more complicated than I thought it was the day before. Uh, but it's, it's really exciting and interesting to learn about and dive into deeper. Awesome. And you guys are also in our MedTech education program, which is really an extremely long course of everything you need to know about regulated product development, entrepreneurship, and running a fundable venture into the future. Um, tell us about your time in the program so far. It's been amazing so far. The people who have run the workshops and classes have an incredible depth of knowledge, and they've been really good at conveying that depth of knowledge to us. I feel like I walk away an expert from each class, and that's been incredible. Yeah, we've also been able to ask really specific questions to the uh, teachers and advisors after the classes, and we're always kind of surprised that they have uh, really good answers and well-thought-out answers to our really like specific and acute questions. Uh, so I think it really shows, and it's really helpful, that they're uh, experts in what they're teaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you want an example, I asked one of the uh, uh, people who taught the classes about like a very specific question about the guidance document for mobile medical applications, and they instantly knew the answer. It was really impressive because the <laughs> FDA has hundreds of guidance documents. Yeah, it's it's mind blowing. I think yeah. we we both all just sat through the past two regulatory classes, and it it's it's daunting. After hearing that, you're a lot of people would really say no. I don't want to keep doing this. So it's great that you guys are like pushing forward and going to be taking on this venture full time. Greg, do you have anything that has stood out to you in any of the classes? Um, just the fact that the people teaching the classes are experts. Um, and when we were learning about the you know, product development uh, at Zymedica, 
um, I thought it was really cool that it was people who work on this every single day that are teaching these classes. Um, and they had a lot of anecdotes also about projects that they've worked on and certain things that they've run into uh, that have kind of helped illustrate their points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely helps to hear the real life experience rather than sort of the vague like FDA website answers that don't feel super real and contextual. Mm-hmm. Um, like putting it actu- actually into real life has been interesting. Yeah. Well, that was, when we were when we were putting the courses together, we were kind of trying to decide like wh- why would someone come take our course rather than going to a university and taking a medtech development course. And I think what we really wanted was to bring in those industry professionals that might be out of academics and have been working on this every day for the past how many years and have been doing it. So that's, that's really great to hear that you guys are really appreciating it. Also, while we were putting the courses together, we kind of started to run with this theme of the unknown unknowns of medtech development. And it was, it, we've been finding out, we've been talking to so many people that they know certain things, these people know certain things, but everyone does not know everything they need to know. Someone else might. Um, was there any unknown unknowns so far that have come up for you guys that you had no clue you shouldn't even have known? Yeah, a big one for us was just learning that um, use errors are considered non-compliance and just learning how important it is to demonstrate the usability of your medical device uh, before you submit your FDA application. Yeah, the verification and validation process, particularly for software, has been really interesting for us to learn about. Um, I'd also add that no matter how much money you think it's going to take, it is always going to take more money. Um, That might not be an unknown unknown. I think a lot of people know that it's expensive to develop and commercialize a medical device, but little things just keep coming up where we realize, oh, that's going to be another expense. And it's crazy how much of them there are. Yeah, every time we discover something that we didn't realize before, it's like, oh, well, that's expensive, and then add it to the budget, and then it just keeps growing. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Do you guys have any pearls of wisdom for maybe students who are looking to get into this field and become med tech regulated entrepreneurs? I would talk to as many experts as you can, as frequently and as early as you can. Yeah, definitely get advice early from people who have done this before. Uh, Generally, people, at least that we've talked to, have been really helpful. um, And that's really contributed a lot to our success and our uh, progress so far. So I think really capitalizing on advice is the the best advice that I could give. Yeah. Also, do your due diligence in terms of customer interviews. Um, We were in a summer accelerator at Brown called B-Lab over the summer, and that Accelerator is very sector agnostic, so they talk a lot about the consumer space, and they really push doing customer interviews, which I don't think happens quite as much in um, medtech. And we ended up doing a lot of customer interviews that gave us a lot of really useful information and uncovered things that I don't think we would have had we um, sort of done the typical number of medtech customer interviews Mm -hmm. with doctors and nurses and EMTs. Yeah, everyone react, uh, interacts with devices differently. So the more people you talk to, the more you learn that maybe there's a certain feature that one user group would like to see that you might not have discovered if you had only talked to a few people in that user group. Uh, so it really helps to dive deep in that area, I think. By now, I think we've spoken to more than 60 doctors, nurses, and EMTs combined. Uh, quite a few. <laughs> uh, and we're still learning more every time we talk to someone new. Yeah, and we, we continue to seek out new advice. Uh, that, hasn't, that process hasn't stopped. Um, we, we don't talk to quite as many people as we did in the, the early days, but we, we're still seeking new advice. Yeah, and now that we have a um, very primitive version of our prototype ready, we're going to start uh, showing that to more people and getting more feedback. Uh, so we're 
hoping that that'll lead to a lot more features that we can add on that will be helpful. I think um, another thing that I would tell people who want to work on a medical device is another thing that we learned in the Summer Accelerator, which is to treat every uh, piece of feedback that you receive and every piece of advice you receive like a data point. Um, Each person's opinion isn't the end-all be-all, and you should treat it as a data point and keep collecting those data points, and then you get a better sense of the big picture. So you guys kind of started coming up with this idea um, here in Providence that has such a great community of universities and students right here. When did the idea really start to evolve from an idea out of your university to a full-time um, venture to work on? would probably say, I mean, over the summer, we really started taking it um, in strides and going with it, but we were both very serious about the, the venture at the like onset of the idea. Um, if you have anything to add. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the day... So I had worked on a, a startup prior to working on this that uh, unfortunately didn't pan out. But by being in the entrepreneurship community and the med tech development community, I kind of learned and was surprised to learn how helpful uh, people in the Providence community were, that we could just email doctors and then they would sit down and meet with us. Then we were just students who had an idea, but they're willing to take us seriously and give us legitimate feedback and legitimate advice on developing our idea. Um, so after that didn't work out, I was like, this is really great. I want to do it again. Uh, so Abby and I were just sitting and talking. Um, you know, we, we work on a student group together. So it was before one of these meetings and uh, I was telling her about how I was working on this thing and it didn't work out. And she was like, oh, well, you know, I have I have this idea for this other project. Um, and I was like, okay, well, you know, let's let's do that. Let's try again. Let's execute this. So I think pretty much from that first uh, conversation, it was let's start a company. I think we immediately started working on it too. <laughs> Just that week, that next weekend, we dedicated a bunch of hours and set up next meetings. Um, I think it had really helped that we worked together before because we knew the um, we knew our weaknesses as a team and were able to put things in place to overcome some of those. Mm-hmm. So how have your roles and responsibilities changed throughout throughout the journey of, of commercializing your device? Yeah, I mean, I feel like at every step of the journey, we've kind of both been wearing all of the hats. Um, because we're just a two-person team, we both have to do a lot of different tasks. Uh, and we're both engineers, so we kind of have a similar technical background. Um, and that, But that only gets us so far. So like, you know, writing business applications and, you know, just communicating with people, planning next steps, uh, planning financials, all of this stuff. We kind of both just work on that together. I think um, the fact that we work on everything together very closely has been a big strength for us uh, because we stay on the same page with most things and there have been very few times where we'll start you know talking about some new aspect of the business and we have like totally disparate ideas Um, actually struggle to think of a single time when that has happened Um, yeah and also an example of where we do kind of delegate and segregate our tasks is that um, Abby has a bit of a background in illustration and she's she's good at that stuff um, so for example when we were developing our prototype of our app uh, Abby drew up the entire user interface and then I took a class or a few classes on signal processing so I was able to to write most of the algorithm and do most of that testing um, so that was an example of when we kind of diverged worked on our tasks independently and then converged and put the you know, product together. Do you see for um, any gaps in those roles in the future to commercialization or any anything you guys um, are like someone else you're looking for or someone else that has maybe a knowledge base that you think might be of, of value to you down the line? Uh, down the road, as we get closer to product launch, uh, 
neither of us has any experience in marketing, and uh, so we're going to be looking for a, a CMO at some point um, as we get closer to launch. I talk to a lot of people um, in the industry, and one thing that I've been personally trying to learn a lot more about is one, digital health, but two, but like connected health. Um, can you guys share with me anything that in your in your time working on this venture that you've learned maybe about the industry that that's pretty cutting edge or something that might be coming down the road? Well, I think what's coming down the road in emergency medicine and with digital and connected health um, is just that everything's going to start to support the improvisational nature of emergency medicine um, because you really need to think on your feet because things change all the time in emergency situations as you're learning more information um, and as you know the health crisis someone is having uh, develops. So uh, I think you know more integrated electronic health records will start to become critical um, and I think everything's going to start to get more compact and easier to use and have more features that allow you to do more in a shorter amount of time um, as an emergency necessitates. I think there's some really exciting things that are going to happen in the field of emergency medicine, um, particularly with digital and connected health and mobile medical applications, which is really exciting. And they can be, they can be developed so fast um, that I think the FDA and other regulatory agencies are going to shift to accommodate those fast-paced changes. Yeah, I think also we're seeing this trend that if something can be done on a smartphone, it is be done. Out. It is being done on a smartphone. Um, like for example, in doctors' offices, sometimes they'll use lamps to look down someone's throat, and sometimes the lamp doesn't work. Sometimes it's working fine, but a lot, regardless, a lot of the time the doctor will use the flashlight on their smartphone to do the same task. Um, so I think that's just kind of an example of this trend where you know more and more technology is being developed for the smartphone because as smartphone processors are getting stronger and the sensors are getting uh, more acute. There's, you know, a lot of possibilities and a lot of, uh, you know, technology that can be capitalized based on this. Yeah. And it gives you the capability to have a medical device in your pocket at all times, mm. which is really exciting. Mm. Yeah. I think this is also big for countries that are less developed uh, and they don't have as much funding for fancy medical equipment that we have in American hospitals. Um, so, for example, like an ultrasound machine can cost thousands of dollars, uh, but there's this new ultrasound that connects to the iPhone uh, through the through the lightning jack, and it does the same task, and it costs like a fraction of the price. Um, so this is this is great for American hospitals too because it saves us money. But in a lot of places in the world, this simply opens the door to using this device that they just wouldn't have had access to otherwise. Well, this question, I don't know oh, yeah. if we want to put it in or not, but. Personally, the when I hear about like people doing CPR, is there for, without your device? Is there a liability on people doing CPR right now? There is not. Uh, there are a lot of Good Samaritan laws that protect people doing CPR, but the issue that we're trying to address is that most people do CPR wrong. Even trained professionals do CPR wrong, um, and it's not because of lack of training. It's just because CPR is very difficult to get right. Not impossible. It with feedback, um, most people can get it right, but without feedback, it's really difficult to gauge that uh, two to two and a half inches of depth that you need to press into the chest. Um, and you have to do that 100 to 120 mm -hmm. times a minute. That's really, really difficult to do um, and so get you right guys wouldn't, often. With people using the device, there wouldn't be a liability on you guys. Let's say if, if, if it's giving feedback, but they do pass away, like how does that work? 
So there is no liability on the person performing CPR. They're protected by Good Samaritan laws. Uh, if the device performs properly uh, and gives correct feedback, uh, then there's no liability on us. Um, but learning about liability insurance is one of the sort of surprise costs that kind of came up. Um, uh, CPR is an interesting case because clinically the person you're performing CPR on is already dead. So that limits liability um, to some extent. But um, there are some liability concerns, and that's something yeah. that we need just to curious, learn more about. I I mean, in the past, I've heard rumors and things about, like, don't give CPR. I don't know. That and I was like, totally no, that is totally not true. If someone uh, should receive CPR, definitely give it, even if you're not sure if you're doing it correctly. Um, try not to worry about breaking ribs, because often uh, I, the force required does break ribs. So give CPR if someone needs CPR. You're protected by Good Samaritan laws yeah, in most places. As long as you're acting in the best interest of the patient, you're protected. There was a controlled study that we read about that suggested that um, I think it was 60% of trained doctors were unable to do it, uh, were unable to perform CPR correctly. So, that, I mean, that's insane. That's most like doctors <laughs> who should know how to do this. Um, and not that's not just bystanders uh, like us. So we're trying to take that guesswork out of CPR. Can you tell me about the goal of CPR? Yeah. So CPR is done in order to compress the heart at thus pumping blood throughout the body, primarily to the brain to keep it oxygenated and keep it viable before a defibrillator can be used to restart the heart. So you're literally compressing the heart and squeezing blood out of the heart manually into the brain to circulate oxygen to the brain tissue. Yeah. You want to maintain blood perfusion in the brain and maintain oxygen perfusion in the brain. But ultimately, it's the defibrillator that actually can restore uh, autonomous circulation. So what are the, what are the next steps for you guys? <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. A lot of fundraising <laughs> coming down the pipeline. Uh, I sort of in the immediate future, we're going to be uh, shoring up our business plan and making sure and, you know, refining the plan um, to make sure we're ready for that fundraising step. But mm -hmm. that's what's coming next. Mm -hmm. We always advise we work with a lot of entrepreneurs on their pitch decks and we do a lot of events where maybe they're not asking for money at the time, but we ask them, what's your ask? What are you looking for right now? Do you have anything you want to like put out there that you guys are looking for? Um, we would love to talk to anyone who has expertise in uh, the regulation of mobile medical applications or software as a medical device. Uh, yeah. That would be exceptionally helpful. <laughs> yeah. Also, if anyone is knowledgeable about marketing avenues for technology like this, we'd love to hear about that. Yeah. Or has advice on fundraising that <laughs> would also be very helpful. What do you guys, um, what are your capital needs in the first seed round? Yeah, so in our seed round, we're looking to raise about 500000 That'll give us one year of operations and also pay for next steps in technical development uh, and give us like a real prototype uh, with documentation that can be submitted to the FDA uh, for that software. Um, but ultimately, in order to get to break even and launch our software app, we're going to need about $2 million. Yeah. Our current prototype is a, a phase zero sort of unregulated and um, not, hasn't entered design control prototype. Well, thank you, Abby and Greg, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and be sure to join us next week for another episode of MedTech Monday. Any comments, please feel free to send me an email at tom at theroadpod.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.